This morning's reading is from Romans chapter 8, beginning to read at verse 18, which can be found on page 1135 of the Church Bibles. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, do keep that passage open before you. It's the passage where Paul gives the eternal answer to evil and suffering that we experience in this world. Now, C.S. Lewis is always a great help in grappling with the big questions. In his book, The Problem of Pain, he describes how he used to argue against the Christian faith. He writes, not many years ago when I was an atheist, if anyone had asked me, why do you not believe in God? My reply would have been, look at the universe we live in. History is a record of crime, war, disease and terror. The universe is running down. All stories will come to nothing. All life will turn out in the end to have been a transitory and senseless contortion upon the idiotic face of infinite matter. If you ask me to believe that this is the work of a benevolent, omnipotent spirit, I reply that all the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else a spirit indifferent to good and evil, or else an evil spirit. So, no God, an indifferent God, or an evil God, but no good God, 
Well, Lewis clearly articulated the problem of evil and suffering better than most atheists, and yet he came to embrace a biblical view that had a far greater explanatory power than his atheism. And we'll see as we consider Romans, uh, this, uh, Romans 18 to 27 this morning. Now, even though we may have come to embrace the Christian worldview, sooner or later, most believers wonder at times whether if being a Christian is worth it. Many people, including most likely some we know, answer in the negative, no. They profess faith as Christians and seek to live God's way for a while, but in time they find their present sufferings aren't worth it, and they fall away. But in this passage in Romans, Paul answers the question with a very emphatic yes. In fact, he says, our present sufferings, verse 18, are not worth comparing with the glory of that will be revealed in us. Now what Paul is saying is this, if you know where you are heading in the future, you won't even entertain the idea that your current problems and pain aren't worth it. Now after citing 18, Romans 8, 18, Lewis in The Problem of Pain writes, a book on suffering which says nothing of heaven is leaving out almost the whole of one side of the account. Scripture and tradition habitually put the joys of heaven into the scale against the sufferings of earth. And no solution of the problem of pain, which does not do so, can be called a Christian one. And he's absolutely right. Strangely, there are Christian books on evil and suffering which say almost nothing about heaven. But present sufferings must be seen in the light of the promise of eternal happiness in God. The scales can't be balanced in this life alone. In both the present suffering and the future glory, both the whole of creation and the people of God are wrapped up in the whole experience together. You may recall in Genesis 3, after the fall, that creation shared man's curse, and now we have the prospect of it sharing man's tribulation. But it will come to share man's glory, verse 19. In time, it too will be redeemed. Creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. So they, that's creation and the sons of God, will be glorified together in the future. So let's just look at each in turn. First creation, verses 19 to 22. Then ourselves, the sons of God, 23 to 25. And then finally we'll see that while we wait, the Spirit helps us out, 26 and 27. Now, notice how creation or the created universe is mentioned four times, once in each of these four verses. And notice how its present sufferings are described. Verse 20, subjected to frustration. 21, bondage to decay. 22, groaning in pain. Now, the word frustration is the same word that the the translators of the uh, Hebrew 
book of Ecclesiastes used when they translated it into Greek you know, a couple of hundred years before Christ. And in our English, we would say vanity. I can still remember riding Lights Theatre Company, putting on a production where the refrain in the book of Ecclesiastes was paraphrased as, under the sun, under the sun, chasing the wind and pretending it's fun. Is that all life is? Vanity, vanity, chasing the wind and pretending it's fun. The frustration is explained in the next verse as bondage to decay, the continuous cycle of birth, growth, death, decay, decomposition, the whole process of deterioration in a universe which appears to be running down. What's more, this process is both literally and metaphorically accompanied by pain. So frustration or futility, decay and pain, these are the words that the apostle uses to, to depict the present suffering of nature. But it's only temporary. We read, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, that's God. And he did so in hope, verse 20. God's discipline after the fall has been purposeful. Many Christians see God from a prosperity theology perspective, a health and wealth gospel, as it's sometimes popularly called. When suffering comes, they believe God has failed them. But God's love and goodness do not mean life will go on as we want. Have you noticed that in your own experience? Lewis certainly did in his. Again, in the problem of pain, which is certainly not a naive rendition of a Christian explanation, Lewis said, God who made us knows what we are and that our happiness lies in him. Yet we will not seek it in him as long as he leaves us any other resort where it can even plausibly be looked for. While what we call our own life remains agreeable, we will not surrender it to him. What then can God do in our interests but make our own life less agreeable to us? and take away the plausible sources of false happiness. So God subjected his crea this creation, his creation, to its frustration, decay and pain. Not to be sadistic, but verse 20, in hope that there is a brighter and a better future that is possible. We read in 21 that the creation will one day be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Bondage will give way to liberty, decay or corruption, to incorruptibility. If we're going to share in Christ's glory, verse 17, creation is going to share in ours. And then in verse 22, we have the groans and pains of creation linked together to the labour pains of childbirth. Instead of pain, there's only joy. 
About six weeks ago, our eldest, Anna, rang us up at 4.30 a.m. to tell us that we had become grandparents of a grandson in addition to our granddaughter. Now, of course, one is naturally concerned how she coped with labour. And I find the quickest way to find that out is to ask, do you think you'll have another one? To which she did not dismiss the idea. So I thought, well, either amnesia has set in within an hour, or she's absolutely fine. You see, the joy has overshadowed the pain that she has gone through. The outcome has been worth it. And that's why Tim Keller suggests that the best metaphor for the current state of creation is in being in labour pains. The painful pangs, he says, are not meaningless because the world is giving birth to a new version of itself. In other words, they're not purposeless pains, but pains necessarily experienced in the bringing to birth of the new creation. Well, he moves now, does the Apostle Paul, in verses 23 to 25, from creation to the church, the sons of God. And this is Paul's answer to whether the future glory makes our present sufferings worth bearing. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation is groaning as it prepares to give birth to something wonderful. And inwardly, we as Christians do too, as we wait. And what is it that we share with creation? What are the present sufferings of the Christian? As we too groan? Well, neither creation nor the Christian are yet fully redeemed. Salvation is a process. And this, as this particular celebrated encounter from the 1890s um, illustrates, the then Bishop of Durham, who went by the name of Dr. Brooke Foss Westcott, who'd been Regis Professor of Divinity at Cambridge, and whose work in establishing the most reliable Greek text of the New Testament, which uh, has only in recent years been updated. Anyway, the bishop was making a train journey. In those days, carriages contained separate compartments for six people. And he sought out an empty compartment and then settled down for a read. Just as the train was about to depart, the door opened and a young girl in Salvation Army uniform jumped in. After she'd settled herself into her corner, she realised she was sharing the compartment with his purple clerical shirt, white collar and oversized silver cross. She realised she was sharing a compartment with a bishop of the Church of England. She hadn't long been a Christian and she was keen to win others for Christ. She leaned across to the bishop who was reading and said very abruptly, excuse me, are you saved? This short but unexpected question caught Dr. Westcott by surprise, and he said in his kindly way, pardon me, what did you say? She thought, there, he doesn't even understand what I'm talking about. And so she explained, 
I simply asked if you were saved. The bishop's face disappeared behind his book and his eyes twinkled merrily for a moment and then leaning towards her, he asked her, excuse me, my dear, but do you mean Sotheis, Sesosmenos, or Sosomenos? The girl's face went blank, then puzzled, then startled. Finally, she blurted out, I don't know what you're talking about. I simply asked you, were you saved? Yes, my dear, replied Dr. Westcott. I asked you which saved you mean. Do you mean I was saved, or I will be saved, or I am being saved? And for the rest of the journey, this Greek scholar explained to this young believer the wonder and immensity of God's salvation, past, future, and present. You see, we have been saved, justified, at the point of our conversion. We will be saved, glorified, at the point of our death. At the moment, we are being saved in the sense of being sanctified, which is a process. So we are a work in progress. Now, why is that? Well, we have a physical mortal body which gets tired, which gets ill, which experiences pain, and which conks out at death. And we also still have a fallen human nature with which we have to wrestle, drawing upon the resources of Christ within us to fight its, to fight its pull on us. And when we are ill or when we succumb to temptation, we groan and we long to be delivered from both of these burdens. Now our future glory is defined in two ways here. First, it is the redemption of our bodies because we're going to be given new bodies on the last day, set free from the double burden of frailty and its capacity to sin. Our resurrection bodies will have new, undreamed-of powers, just like the resurrected body of Jesus has, and with no indwelling sin. And then secondly, our future glory is called our adoption as sons. The Greek word means the same as sonship in verse 15. In one sense, we have already been adopted. To those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. But in another sense, we're still waiting for it. We're still waiting for our inheritance because our present sonship, although glorious, is imperfect. We are not yet conformed either in body or in character to the image of God's perfect son, the Lord Jesus. Nor has our sonship yet been publicly revealed and recognized. Mind you, the fact that it is to be revealed implies that it exists already. But the, the last day will witness what in verse 19 is called the revealing of the sons of God. That's when we will obtain what is called the glorious liberty of the children of God. And creation is going to obtain it with us. Now, of this future, we can be absolutely sure. Why? Because, verse 23, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We've not yet received our final adoption as sons. We've not yet received the redemption of our bodies. But we have received the Holy Spirit, 
the God-given guarantee of our full inheritance to come. In fact, he's more than a guarantee of it. He is a foretaste of it. Now, sometimes Paul uses the commercial metaphor, for example, in Ephesians, I think 1.14, and calls the Holy Spirit the deposit, the first installment, if you like, in a higher purchase agreement, the down payment which certifies the remainder is going to be paid later. Here, though, the metaphor is agricultural, the first fruits, the first pickings of the harvest being a pledge of the fuller harvest to come. So the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of sonship, makes us the children of God, verse 15, and then witnesses with our spirit that we are God's children, verse 16. And he's also the pledge of our complete adoption to be the sons of God, when our bodies are redeemed. And verses 24 and 25 enforce this further, asserting that in this hope we were saved, but we're only half saved, as it were, in hope of a full salvation at the end of time. The object of that hope is invisible. We do not yet see it, but we wait for it with patient fortitude, undeterred by the sufferings of this present time. Tim Keller comments, someone who both he and his wife have been through cancer. We know that we are not what we will one day be, that we do not already have all that one day we will have. We know that all our best days lie ahead of us and that one day all our painful days will lie behind us. We wait eagerly, and yet also patiently, knowing that the pain will pass, and that this life is not all there is. C.S. Lewis puts it similarly, and he himself suffered First World War fighting in the trenches, bereavement, and various other things. He puts it like this in Mere Christianity. We look forward to the day when, quote, God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. You see, the best is yet to be. God will deliver on his promise. It will be worth it. And then finally, in verses 26 and 27, we see that while we wait, the Holy Spirit helps us pray. Sometimes we can get ourselves into such dreadful situations when we just don't know how to pray to God at all. We may be too weak, we may be drugged up, we may be too confused, we may be too despairing. Times when we do not know, Paul writes, what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans and words that cannot express. 
See, fortunately, God knows our hearts. He knows our motivations and our intentions, even at times when we can't articulate them for ourselves. And we read, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So he prays for us. He prays for our best eternal interests. And let me end with a final comment from my namesake, Clive Staples Lewis. And it was actually, I wrote this on Thursday, but it was actually the same quote that Sam Baker, who is Hannah's brother, Hannah got married yesterday, and Sam was one of the two best men, and he ended his best man speech with this particular quote. Now you might think, how are you going to use the same quote from an occasion which is joyful, a wedding day, when you've been explaining what the Apostle Paul writes about suffering. Well, it's all about ultimate reality and seeing everything, the joys and the sorrows in life, through the lens, if you like, of the last day, of what it is all aiming towards. In the fifth chapter of the last battle called Farewell to Shadowlands, Aslan, who is the Christ figure, the lion, gives the children shocking news. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your mother and father and all of you are, as you used to call it, in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun, the dream is ended, this is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Such is the vast and far-reaching salvation plan of our King Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, the Apostle Paul has been able to write so clearly about suffering. And we thank you that we're able to learn from other Christians who've gone before us, like C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller, who probably helpfully through their own experience of suffering have been able to clarify things for us. And we thank you that we can look at this life with all its joys and with its sorrows through the perspective of eternity, to where this whole creation, to where our complete lives are all heading. And we thank you that you have given us the invitation to join you in it. And we pray that uh, your spirit will sustain us until we arrive 
at the perfected eternity. Amen.